Hello, everyone. You're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. All right, we are recording. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another In the Weeds. Uh, Monica Jean here. Uh, excited to be getting another podcast out to you guys, kind of reflecting on what the Kellogg Biological Station uh, has been doing around crop production and uh, it, like the environmental implications, good, bad, whatever, right? Just the effect that we are having on field of edge around our fields. And so we're diving into another topic today around that, except this one's going to be beneficial insects. And um, we're going to reflect on lady beetles as a specific example, but talk about it broader too. So uh, I'll get into introductions here. My name is Monica Jean. I'm a field crops educator in the central Michigan region um, based out of Alma, Michigan. And I, of course, have a wonderful co-host today, and that is Sarah Franzak. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, Sarah Franzak. I'm an environmental management educator with MSU Extension. I help farmers uh, with environmental issues on their farm to help them become more sustainable. And then we are very fortunate to have Christy here. And Christy well, was previously at the Kellogg Biological Station to talk about some of the research there. But Christy, you want to go ahead and tell us a little yeah, bit? About absolutely. Yourself? So, um, hi everyone. Um, my name is Christy Balai. Um, I am an assistant professor at Kent State University, and I specialize in computational ecology. Um, so. I build models to describe how organisms and ecosystems interact with um, each other. And I mostly focus on insects and often on beneficial insects. And so that's um, Kellogg Biological Station actually got me into this business. So very cool. Um, and what did you do uh, when you were at KBS? What was your what, what were you looking at? What were you up to? So um, KBS is a really awesome place to do work because it is a long-term ecological research experiment. Um, and so it has had a, um, I don't know how much um, everyone knows about K how KBS is set up, but they set up this um, long-term field crop experiment in 1989. And I was brought in to analyze this historical data that was coming out of the insect monitoring um, system in the KBS data set. Um, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I just knew that um, Doug Landis, um, who was my supervisor during the time, uh, had this amazing data set. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'll join. And then I joined KBS and I found out that there was just this incredible wealth of data and information and people all working in this system, learning about agriculture and learning about row crops specifically um, in um, this setting that where they could actually watch things happen from year to year, which is really unusual um, because science tends to be funded in sort of these short intervals. So we got this really nice long picture of how these systems were playing out and playing out together. Very cool. So if we talk specifically about the insect story at KBS, um, I, uh, I I stole a quote from your previous co-worker who was 
Oh, gosh, no, I missed his name again that we talked about him earlier. Oh, Nick Haddad. Haddad, yes. He said, as to Lady Beatles, I think they are an important story beyond pest control. They are emblematic of the insect apocalypse declining so fast they may disappear before long. I was just like, ooh, that is spicy. Spicy. I don't know. It's something. (laughs) Well, so I wouldn't say that we're going to have them disappear altogether. But a lot of the, so what a lot of people don't know about ladybugs is we've got about 500 different species of them in North America. Um, and so there's actually a lot of diversity within these ladybugs. So there are beetles in the family Coccinellidae, and a large majority of them are sort of that iconic red beetle with black spots, but there is some additional diversity. Um At KBS, we have about a dozen species um, that sort of show up on the regular. And what Nick was talking about was this incredible change in the community in in particular, where a lot of our native species are almost absent now. And we've only got European and Asian species that are showing up regularly. Um, You still can occasionally find the native species, um, but... By and large, the community is completely dominated by these non-native species, so the seven-spotted lady beetles. So that's the one that most people think of as the ladybug. Um, it's sort of a large, really dome-shaped one, and it has seven black spots. So they were really, really, you know, on the nose obvious that, yeah. um, <laughs> on the nose with that name, yeah. And then the multicolored Asian lady beetle, which a lot of people refer to as not a real ladybug because it's from elsewhere is that the stinky orange one it's the stinky orange one but it's it's actually the name is also on the nose for that one because they call it multicolored and it can actually range from completely black to completely yellow um you can get sort of reddish ones most of the ones that we get at kbs are sort of red to orange and have 20-ish spots but they can they can vary from spotless to um just completely covered in spots as well but those two species are really dominant at kbs and it's kind of funny because we um think of the seven spotted lady beetle as this real ladybug but it's also non-native it's from europe um it's been around since i think it was 1985 when it was first captured at kbs and it became the dominant species. Um, now, that said, these two species seem to be in decline as well. Not as rapidly as de- declining as the native species, but they're not doing the greatest either. Okay. Huh. I was unaware. Yeah, so Man, they're, they're actually so diverse. This is, you know, scientifically, this community has been just so really interesting to study because we've got things that are really similar to each other but also have differences and so we can actually look at really subtle effects of how the environment interacts with all these different species and how different changes in the landscape actually affect different species Um, and so it gives us sort of this natural lab that we can look at what's important when an environment is changing so what is important to lady beetles? What's What do you think is causing the decline? Well, uh, everything. <laughs> so that's, that's a terrible answer, but it's also kind of true. So we have um, all sorts of different things that are interacting together. And they're all um, 
sort of, well, um, a colleague of mine, David Wagner, refers to it as a death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, we have an environment that's changing due to climate change. We have um, agricultural practices changing. So there was a, sort of a big um, call recently, of, of probably about six or seven years ago, implicating the use of neonicotinoid seed treatments in the loss of a lot of insects within agricultural landscapes. Um, there are but there's also the issue of, well, we're getting better at controlling weeds. Um, and so crops are cleaner, crops are simpler. And that means that there are fewer places within these um, landscapes for insects to have sort of these alternate food sources um, or places to overwinter or that sort of thing. Um, so we have um, these changing management practices. We also have changing landscapes. So increasing urbanization, increasing suburbanization, I'd say is a big thing um, where we have just increasing sprawl around our cities instead of sort of more um, concentrated human density. And so we have sort of these wider impacts of humans. Um, and so all of these things are acting together. And some species are more sensitive to some changes and some species are more sensitive to other changes. And when you add them all together, it means that we lose sort of entire communities. And it means that small changes can actually affect the whole community because they're all sort of working together and they can it ripples through. Mm -hmm. So if we're having all of these little paper cuts, is there... Are there any remediations we can do to sort of help the populations along? Um, I've seen a lot of really encouraging data coming from crop diversification programs. So things like the um, Michigan Strips program has had some very, very promising data for how they can harbor um, natural enemies and beneficial insects within croplands. So giving those spaces back um, like giving a little bit of the cropland space back to the insects and allowing them to have a place has been really important for maintaining biodiversity in landscapes. Mm -hmm. um, I've also seen some very nice work coming out of the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center where the focus has been on giving, using lands um, that are sort of marginal for crop production for things like bioenergy production, where you can grow things like mixed prairie grasses. And then you can um, foster insect populations in those landscapes while also producing biomass. But um, you have sort of these slightly messier um, lands that allow the insects to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, Monica, have you had an interview with the MyStrips people yet? Yeah, actually, before this posting. Uh, so if you look down, you will see there's two. And we do talk with Nick about um, the interaction of insects within uh, the strips. So yeah, yes, we do have that. That's kind of why we wanted you on to kind of oh, talk fantastic. about the whole <laughs> system. But yeah, yes, we have two. And it would also discuss is how to sign up for my strips and um, how to manage them, like kind of all of the work that goes into having them. So, and then in a previous podcast to that, we also have Bruno Bazo talking about maybe where you decide to put those strips, like what fields and where, because they're low producing. So, yeah. Thank you, Sarah, for that uh, really sly. Uh, I had a good, I had a question. I just wanted to know. <laughs> um, so, 
I'm an avid gardener. Um, and I think a lot about getting the right kinds of insects into my garden, mostly because I'm lazy and I don't like picking bugs off of my plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I know there's people that do that, but, <laughs> but I am not that person. So um, I think a lot about trying to get natural predators um, into my garden. And I, I wondered if you could explain why maybe choosing natu- natural predators, um, other insect predators, right? in uh, versus like insecticides might be a good choice for a conventional farmer um, or even an organic farmer, right? Like why, why, why bugs instead of chemicals? Well, that's a really good question. And um, I wouldn't want to like say, you know, never pesticides. Pesticides are very useful for controlling pest outbreaks. But um, pest outbreaks are usually symptoms of sort of an unbalanced system where you don't have sort of a resident population of natural enemies. One of the, the best things that natural enemies do is prevent pest problems from occurring in the first place. And so having a large population of um, natural enemies is really important for sort of being able to maintain things. Um, I'm also an avid gardener. And so I... I've been trying to figure out this new landscape that I'm in in Ohio. Um, And so we're mostly forested. And so we don't tend to have the same populations of um, sort of crop specific natural enemies. And so every year um, I just end up with a white fly outbreak on my tomatoes. And so there is sort of like a, a, a point where it's, you know, there's only so much you can control. Um, But having, Lots and lots of diversity in what you're planting really does help, um, sort of keeps those pest problems from spiking. It's usually sort of at the drought of the end of summer that that's when things get out of control. Um, you know, the natural enemies just can't keep up with things, but having flowers interplanted within your garden um, helps really support natural enemies. So a lot of the um, lady beetles, for instance, and a lot of things like surfid flies. So these are little bee flies um, that are you know, they're really cute little bee-like flies, but um, they also, they pollinate, but they also have a larva that is a predator for aphids. Um, and they're, they're delightful. They actually are a fly. So they little they their little eggs and then the it hatches and they are killer maggots that actually crawl over mm-hmm. and eat tiny little aphids. They're, they, those, <laughs> those flies confuse the crap out of my kids. Yeah, they're... Um, they like land on my kids. My kids freak out because they think it's a bee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'm like, no, it's not. It's a. It's not going to sting you. We'll be okay. But now that I know that they have like a crazy, like maggot that just eats everything. Yeah, I, it's like a, a little horror movie. So they have yeah. two little rasping um, mandibles, and so if you like look at this under a microscope, you go, oh wow. This is a horror movie, but they're amazing. So like they have two different beneficial stages. I just love surfing flies because, you know, they are tricky in that they look like bees. They're clever, you know, but they're also really important pollinators. And then their their larvae 
are really important biological controls. And since they're really small at that life stage, a lot of people don't even see and appreciate them. Um, but yeah, you get them under a right. microscope and they are they're just grasping. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Gutting these these poor little aphids, but you know, aphids are a problem too. So, <laughs> so I think what I learned from that, besides <laughs> about the horror of that bug, um, <laughs> is that it is bal- you it's a balancing act. And you yeah. need to use IPM, but if yep. you have so prairie strips could be pretty much like the idea of planting the flowers in your garden, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you have that reservoir for the um insects to, you know, exist and live and then be able to benefit. Um and then of course edge of field, if you kind of promote having some edge of field as well. Yep. Yeah you would you could have a good balance okay Mm -hmm. all right i'm getting that and that would be of course there are situations when sometimes we do have to use insecticide yeah um but but... be sparing with it um so actually during my phd i developed uh, an ipm tool um for use in soybeans um so you you would get soybean aphid outbreaks but if you have enough natural enemies the soybean aphid outbreak would kind of taper off and then stop and go under that economic threshold. And so in Ontario, we actually still um, use this tool quite a bit. It's the dynamic action threshold. And what we did was we modeled how fast aphid populations can grow and how fast natural enemies can eat them. And if it looked like between the weather and the numbers of the natural enemies all sort of taken together, if we could taper off that growth, we would say, okay, wait for that pesticide application. And usually the natural enemies would um, knock the numbers off and the growth off. And so what we found was using this tool and using sort of this more conservative management strategy, we could cut out almost two thirds of the applications of foliar insecticides that we were using in soybean in Ontario. Wow. Um, That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Um, It's a lot of environmental impact. It's a lot of... um, like a lot of um, effort too, you know, going out to spray. And so um, what we found is, yeah, we can actually reduce that quite a bit. And the natural enemies are actually kicking in when we need them. Cool. So uh, if I have growers that are organic, are organic insecticides any better or worse than maybe traditional chemicals? Well, not really. So Organic chemicals tend to be a little less specific. So um, a lot of the synthetic chemicals that um, are on the market, they can target um, very specifically like the aphids. Um, So I'm only speaking about soybean here and I'm only talking about um, things that are licensed in Canada. So there's sort of my disclaimer (laughs) right now. Um, But like we had some promising, really highly specific, low impact uh, chemistries that were coming through when I was doing my PhD. And we evaluated some some of the broader spectrum organic chemicals and they worked. But unfortunately, we had to apply large amounts to get that same amount of loss of population growth. And so the natural enemies were actually a lot more reliable in the organic Mm -hmm. systems um, for sort of keeping the numbers in check. Um, In the organic systems, we actually saw generally higher numbers of natural enemies too. So it's a little bit more of a reliable go to have those um, natural enemies in those systems. 
Um, it, well, I, a lot of my experience with organic is they have smaller field sizes too. Mm-hmm. So you have more edges. Yeah. I'm making a square with my hands. Um, yeah. If, <laughs> um, but uh, I think that helps out with having more space, right? For those yeah. beneficial insects, like we just discussed. They also yeah. have a lot more weeds. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot going on in between the plants that you're actually growing out there. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that probably had a lot to do mm-hmm. with it. So. And the calculus of it changes because, of course, organic beans are a higher value crop. And so applying the pesticide are it's often more expensive the organic pesticides are often more expensive as well and so there there's basically you have to get to a higher number of aphids for it to be worthwhile to apply all right now uh, of course i don't have the numbers on what a barrel of soybeans uh, organic versus um uh right. <laughs> the conventional yeah, yeah. um Oh, I was deep into that in 2012, but right. I, uh, the market's been going all over. So I, in, in this second, I don't think I have a good representation of the comparison mm-hmm. right now either, but yeah, I mean, typically I will say that because more farmers are entering the organic market, they, we have seen some loss in strength of, um, uh, like the, the return that you get. So, mm-hmm. but it's still more. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like overall, you know, we are seeing a change in the insect like population and dynamics around our fields. And so whether that's like lady beetles or um, I'm sure there's other ones. I don't know because I'm not an entomologist, but uh, that we, you know, we impact what's around us and we're losing out on the benefit of what's around us because of that. And so considering my pra- the prairie strip program and my prairie strips, my prairie strips, whatever you want to mm-hmm. uh, call it, and li- maybe listening to those two recordings we already have, um, or contacting the prairie strip coordinator, you know, or, or maybe you just want to look at uh, putting in something, plantings around the edge of your fields and not putting something in the middle. I whatever. Think- you know, we have CREP going in the state too. CREP's a great tool. CRP is a great tool. You could put in field borders and get paid rent on that land. Um, leaving fence rows in is a really easy thing to do. We don't, I'm imagining, and you know, Christy, tell me if I'm wrong, but the more diversity of of ground cover that we have, the more diverse insects we have. So if we have a few trees, along with our grasses and forbs, we get even more stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The more diversity in the landscape, the more heterogeneity is what we say in in landscape ecology. So any sort of difference, any sort of edge, um, those are the places where you find the most insects because they're they're moving between resources because they need lots of different resources to survive. And so having these different things that are sort of in proximity to each other is really important for um, insects to be able to do well because they're not just eating. They also need to find places to mate. They also need to find places to lay their eggs and they also need to find places to spend the winter. Mm -hmm. And so being able to move from place to place really easily is really important for small Mm -hmm. critters that a lot of them can't move around as easily. And I imagine that there's redundancy in it too, as far as the way they serve us and our fields right? Mm -hmm. So if we have um, multiple kinds of landscapes, 
that builds redundancy and resiliency into our agricultural system by having more bugs that do the same jobs. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the ladybugs are so interesting because, you know, 500 species, but most of them eat aphids and a lot of the aphids are crop pests. And so we've got all these different players sort of doing that same job. And so they're really useful to have multiple species because, you know, if a disease comes and wipes out one species, at least we've got the others, right? Or something doesn't um, do well under a drought condition. Well, other species probably will. Excellent. I want to ask one more off the ball, like off the cuff question here. Sure. If it's not, just say no, Monica. I'm not. (laughs) What if someone asked you, or, or said to you, they didn't want to do that because they were worried they'd invite bad pests in. And you you can. Um, the, yes, sometimes bad pests do occur in hedgerows. So like oat rust, for example, on buckthorn, um, you can get this alternate host. That happens. Um, but most of the time when you have this high diversity, it means that you're not having sort of that, that same pool. So um, Imagine a crop as a buffet. Um, It means that it's really, really easy for a pest to spread from one plant to the next, right? Um, It's just, okay, I'm an aphid and I'm having my babies on this plant. Well, this next plant is also really good for me. When you have things like hedgerows and diversity, you can have something that's a pest. Actually, soybean aphid is also uh, um, it also hosts on buckthorn. Buck- European buckthorn is a whole other ball game because it's such a host for everything. So if you have um, buckthorn upon buckthorn upon buckthorn beside each other, yep, they can spread fairly easily between those plants. But if you have buckthorn and then a maple tree and then some grass and then some um, forbs, it's a lot harder to spread. And so you don't get that same concentration. And so um, these alternate habitats tend to provide security without providing sort of this overwhelming host for these pests. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, thank you for answering my off-the-cuff questions. Oh, no problem. (laughs) Is there anything else that you would like to share today, Chrissy, you feel maybe like we haven't covered or? Um, Just that insects are really important in agricultural systems and in human systems broadly. So um, since working at Michigan State, I'm now working a lot in conservation systems. And we're thinking a lot about how we preserve these chunks of landscape. So I'm working a lot with um, national parks. um, And we're looking at how insects are really a measurement of the health of an ecosystem. And so it's really important to think about how the broader ecosystem is supporting all of the insects, because that's just a piece of the biodiversity that really keeps the planet going. Cool. Very good. Thank you so much for Thank being so on much. here. Um, any last comments, Sarah? No, I just I really enjoyed meeting you today. Thanks. Okay. Well, right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you listeners for uh, getting on for another In the Weeds podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash
field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.